0: You know, the greatest position that exists in the kingdom of God, that is the highest ranking position, the most honored seat in the room, the most sought after title in God's kingdom, meaning under the king himself, is servant. Right? This is why Jesus said, the things that he said, right? In, in Matthew 20, he said things like this. Listen, we're not going to be like those Gentiles by the, like the world, the way that they do things. This is how we operate. He said things like, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why when we imagine the life of a Christian... We could just as easily substitute the word servant because the follower of Jesus is synonymous with servant. Some of us might actually struggle with this a little bit, though. We might actually struggle with this idea of like, man, the highest calling in my life is to be a servant. But the point is that you and I as followers of Jesus, we have one purpose, and that is to do whatever Jesus wants. That's why we're here. That's why we chose to follow him. That's what we agreed to. That's what we submitted to. To go one step further, I believe, now this is Harrison, so you're just gonna have to take that with a grain of salt, but I think the most expendable resource in God's kingdom is a believer because the believer, the intent is to accomplish the mission of leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And to put it more simply, If you are a follower of Jesus, it's not about you. As a follower of Jesus, it's not about me. It's about the kingdom and the purposes of Jesus. So listen, over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about serving. is one of the key rhythms of every follower of Jesus that keep us rooted and then growing in our faith. So wherever you're engaging from, whether you're online or you're at another campus or you're here in the room, which by the way, we love seeing faces, at least half of them. Um, we, we love that. But wherever you're engaging from, let me just say, I'm glad we actually get to get into this because this might feel like, whoa, okay, this is a little intense, but I think we need to walk through it because it is Good. It is what actually leads to the adventure of following after him. So, the way that we're going to look at this is this week we're going to focus on why serving is so important. Why do we actually do this? And what does it look like to serve as part of the church family? And then the next week we'll get into more of how do we discover our particular gift mix and and calling and purpose? And how do we take our gifts to then go serve beyond the walls of the church and engage in our community and in our world? A word to those of you, by the way, who would say, I'm not actually a follower of Jesus. So if we're about to get all intense on this, then let me just say, I just showed up, all right? I'm just here, I'm just kind of seeking, or my friend bribed me with dinner. And so that's the only reason that I came. And listen, let me just say this. I'm glad you're here because these series of messages, um, this is a really helpful opportunity for you to actually hear what scripture talks about when we talk about following the ways of Jesus. Because my guess is you might have had a few bad examples. You might have had a few bad experiences but this is an opportunity for you to hear from us and from the word to go, hey, this is what it means to follow in the ways of Jesus. But here's our problem. You See, the problem is scripture says and shows us a clear picture that a follower of Jesus is a servant. But our culture is helping us develop a dangerous skill. The ability to look the part without actually having to do anything our culture is teaching us this ability to have the right image without having the right actions is something that I'm kind of forming in my own mind as an idolatry of image that means we place such a high value on the right image the right look the right picture instead of doing the right thing or doing it the right way Let me give you some examples, because for us in the church world, uh, we know how important it is to be devoted to the word, right? We're going to talk a little bit more about in a couple weeks. weeks, but we know that like every follower of Jesus needs to be daily in the word in some way, because it's literally like food for your soul. We need to be in prayer every day, because that's like breathing for the life of a believer. Now, sometimes if we are learning this skill or giving into this idolatry of image, sometimes we will spend more time preparing the picture of our devotion time for Instagram than actually doing the devotion. Has anybody done that? Don't raise your hand. We all kind of have that moment, right? Or what about this? The families that spend lots of money taking that perfect, candid, oh, I didn't even know you are right there picture. That says like, oh, you caught us laughing and having a good time. This is how it is all the time, right? We spend lots of good, my family, lots of money trying to make sure that our family looks right. But sometimes we don't spend near the same amount of money, time or resources investing in the relationships. Or dealing with our stuff. Because we have an idolatry of image. There's value to it and we're losing value on some other things, companies will literally spend millions of dollars creating a brand that communicates, no, we really, really care about you. But honestly, what they're doing is they're trying to get something from you, and typically they will compromise in other ways to gain a profit. Now, let me just say this. Is that true all the time? Every single person who's ever taken a picture of their devotions, does that mean they have an idolatry issue? I don't think so. I don't think so. Is every single family that has um, a smiling picture in their house, does that mean they have an idolatry of image issue? I don't think so. Every company, you know, that's not what I'm saying, but I am saying there's an idolatry of image skill set that we're developing as a culture. We're placing a higher value on the right image than the right actions. We do this because I think it's easier. There are a lot of reasons we do this, okay? We're afraid of what life is really like, and so we want to take the best picture in a snapshot that we can. But in, in, by and in large, I think it's just easier to take a picture than live up to what we hope the picture communicates. You see, here's what happens. We begin to live a disintegrated self. Do you know what I mean by that? That means like the head and the heart and the hands are now on a different page. That means you might think or say something, but your hands do something different. And the danger and the cost of this is that there's no real power in that kind of living. There's no significance or joy that comes with that kind of living. And here's the good news. This is not a new issue. This isn't like, oh man, America, 10 years ago, we discovered this thing and now we're all struggling with it. No, this has literally been happening. This has literally been the struggle of humanity since humanity came on the scene. And this is why we want to keep coming back to scripture because this brings the light of truth to things like the idolatry of imagery. In, or the idolatry of image. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at James chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn James chapter 2. If those of you who know James chapter 2, you're like, oh, snap. Okay, this is about to get real. And you're right. It is about to get real. Because truth sometimes hurts. When we shine light on dark places, it's uncomfortable. Right? But this is why we go to the Word. Because it brings about new life for us as we shine the truth on things that are false. And again, let me just be clear. My purpose is to do one thing. I wanna help us see that the greatest calling in God's kingdom is to live daily as a servant. I just want you to get that. Uh, Put it in another context. I know that the greatest thing I could do for my wife is to be her servant. Because if I serve her and she serves me, think of what comes of that kind of marriage. The greatest calling imaginable for you and I as followers of Jesus in the kingdom is to play the role of a servant. That's who we are. James, the author of this letter, he's actually the half brother of Jesus. Many of you already know a lot of this about him. And after Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead, that's when his half brother said like, oh man, maybe he is God. And so then James, the brother of Jesus, looks at Jesus and says, he is God. And then he comes to a place even further where he takes a prominent role in the church in Jerusalem. And so James goes through this major transformation. And when he writes this letter, and back in the day, they would actually sign their name first. And then at the end, they would kind of say like, this is who it's to, or here's who I want to encourage. We write, this is who it's to, and then we sign our name at the bottom. They did it the reverse. Look at how he opens his letter letter. James introduces himself and he says, James, the brother of Jesus, right? You would have that one. You would be able to take that everywhere, right? You would be able to go like, oh, by the way, I'm Jesus's brother. So scoot over. That's my seat, right? He doesn't do that. James, the the leader of the church in Jerusalem, where the church was born. He doesn't say that. What does he say? The highest. Calling imaginable in God's kingdom is what he says. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he introduced himself. What's on your business card? How do you introduce yourself? Just kidding. We're not going to get into that. Okay, Um, let's, let's do this. We're going to jump into chapter two. We're going to pick up in verse 14. And again, James, I feel like we're about to jump on a moving train. So there's going to be a little bit of a traumatic moment as we get into this, but then we're just going to hang on for the ride. Okay, can we do that? So chapter 2, verse 14, here's what it says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So again, we're coming into this hot, all right? And as we're reading through this passage, here's what I, I want to invite you to do something. Some of you know this passage forward and backwards and you're like, I got this memorized. Memorize it for 20 years. I want you to kind of hear it fresh, okay? I want you to let this passage read you. Does that make sense? Like sometimes we read things and then other times they read us. That's what this needs to be like for us. Let this read us. Let it show us things about ourselves. Because look at what James is asking. He's saying, is there any power... And the kind of faith that doesn't have any deeds? Is there any power to a faith that doesn't do anything? Is that actually working? For some of us in this room, faith was something that was handed to us as a baby, but it didn't change anything in our world. Is that working? Would you, would you say that, that this is the life I've been aiming for? This is the pursuit I'm running after? James is saying, like, does it even work? And in this passage, he asks two rhetorical questions. We'll get to another one in a second. But look, here's the deal. He's not looking for you to answer. He's looking for you to wake up. He goes on to verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Do you hear that? That kind of faith is dead. You know, this is the picture of the disintegrated self that we were talking about. This is where our words are saying something, but our actions aren't willing to back it up. Our actions aren't willing to kind of follow through with it. You know, for in, our, in our house, Um, I remember the day when our kids tried to give away everything in our van to a homeless person we saw on the side of the road. And we're like, whoa, 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 hey, hold on. You know, they were like getting out wallets and, you know, luggage that we had in there. And I was like, guys, hold on, time out. You know what I mean? We can't do this for every single person we run into. And so after seeing a few people and our kids trying to give away everything, we finally said like, guys, we need a plan. Okay, we, it's more complicated, right? As you grow older, you learn not to help people for good reasons. Um, sorry, thank you, that was a joke. Okay, I'm proud of you. Um, so, so I said, okay, we, we gotta do something. So they made us make packets, so in our van, and I might have told you guys this before, in our van, we have homeless friend packets that when we see somebody on the side of the road and, and we're at a place where it's not dangerous to hand it to them, we will, will kind of, hey, hey, we want to give you this thing. Our kids made us do it. No, we say like, hey, we've been thinking about you legitimately and we, and we hope this is a blessing. So imagine we pull up because my kids are just like, oh, man, they have. A hard- oh, side note. If you're also just walking on the side of the road, my kid thinks you're homeless. Um, We haven't quite crossed that bridge, but that's how they see things. And and so we're still learning how all this plays out. But imagine we pull up to the red light and we see one of our homeless friends and we say, man, oh, dude, it's so cold right now. It's been raining. You know, their their feet are soaked and soggy, and they're just got that bitter chill to the bone. Man, my heart breaks. And so I roll down the window and I invite him over. And I say, hey, hey, listen. And then I take my phone and I take a selfie with them. And I say like, man, I hope your day gets better and drive off. Okay, no, wait, hold on. Say I even post about it and say, man, my heart breaks for the homeless in our city. What good is that? According to James, that kind of faith is a corpse. There's no life in that. That doesn't do anything. He goes on, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. So obviously there's a conversation going on in the body of believers there. And so he addresses it and says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. The main point is this right here. He's saying, isn't, he isn't saying there's two versions of faith. There's a faith that doesn't have deeds, and then there's a faith that does. James is making the point that there is no version of faith. There is no version of trusting Jesus. That's what faith means. Separated from or lacking deeds. True faith works. It does something. It acts. There's no version of faith that lacks action. That doesn't exist in the mind of New Testament understanding of what it means to have faith. In verse 19, he amps it up a little bit. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Awesome. Great. Proud of you. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. So like a good preacher, James um, is taking a pretty extreme example to kind of make a point, right? Now, here's what you need to see. So the Jewish audience would immediately tune into something because other translations say, you believe that God is one because that immediately takes every Jewish person back to the Shema. They grew up saying these daily prayers that we find in Deuteronomy 6, 4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you see what James is doing? He's saying the foundation of your faith, this prayer you've built your life on, this thing that you grew up with, this thing that says this is who we are. We are God's people here, oh Israel. You know what James is saying? Demons have that kind of faith. That's a little bit of a slap in the face. Oh, you're proud of your, listen, demons have that kind of faith. They believe, they know there's one true God. They understand very clearly there's only one God. There's no one above him. There's no one that can stand against him. There's no one that can come against him. They believe in that kind of God. And when they think of the one true God, they tremble, but it doesn't change anything. You know why? Because they don't surrender to that God. They rebel against him. They keep hoping he's going to fail and he's not. Or they believe in him, but it doesn't change their actions. And so James is saying, man, you got to understand, there's way more to this. So he gives you a bad example (laughs) demons, all right? Then he gives us two good examples. Verse 20, it says, you foolish person. James is a little feisty. Can we just admit this? He's like ticked off at something. You know what I mean? He had a bad night. His wife kicked him out. I don't know what happened. But he's like, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham. Whoa, 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 be careful. Abraham's the man. So he says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Listen, if you want to catch up on this story, go to Genesis 22. But Abraham was their guy, right? You got many of you know this story. Abraham was the guy The guy God came to him and said, you are the one that I'm going to make a promise to. And when I make a promise, I don't fail on my side of this promise. And he said, I'm going to take your family and I'm going to turn it into a nation. And out of all the nations in the world, I'm going to bless you. You know why? Because you're going to grow into this amazing nation that I will then use to bless all the nations of the world. He says, I'm going to enter into covenant with your family and I'm going to use you for generations. And then Abraham can't have kids for years. And he says, well, I thought probably to have a family, I need to have a kid. And Sarah couldn't get pregnant until 90. So he's 100 years old. She's 90. That comes with a whole different set of complications. Um, but, but all of a sudden they begin this. They see the fulfillment of God's promise. But there's a, there's a day several years later where God goes, I wonder if Abraham's faith is still working. I wonder if his faith is still leading him to act. His faith began when I said, hey, I want you to leave this place and go somewhere else. I wonder if his faith will work when I say, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son from Sarah. And so Abraham says yes. And he and his son Isaac are going up the mountain and Isaac's going, I see um, most of what we need for the sacrifice except the sacrifice and 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 so they get to the point where Abraham's literally about to take the life of his son and if you're new to church you need to know human sacrificing is not currently a part of what we do anymore okay this is an old testament reality but but he's getting to the point where he said God you promised you promised that I would be a coming nation I don't know how you're going to do it on the other side of this but I'm just going to say yes and trust you And right before he goes through it, that God intervenes. And and so the whole point is, James is saying in verse 22, you see his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Please hear this part. Because when I say, listen, being a servant is the greatest call in the kingdom of heaven. Some of you are going like, that sounds horrible. Right. Some of you grew up in church and all you ever heard was don't do a lot of stuff. Hey, if there's anything fun, don't do that. Glad you're a Christian. Right. So we've got this picture of following Jesus that is kind of distorted. The great joy of getting to be a part of his kingdom and being a servant in the kingdom of God is right there. God calls you a friend. This is just know your name. He's invited into relationship. You're invited into relationship with him. That's the great delight because now we want to serve him. We want to be all about what he wants. Anything that he desires, that's what we desire. Anything that is going to be a part of his will, that's what we want our will to become. Whatever your will is, that's what we want because we're counted a friend of God. You see, that person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. I love how a Puritan preacher, John Owen, says it. He describes this tension. He says, faith alone saves. You see, when you take the full picture, because a lot of people think that James and Paul, they're just on a different page, and they're not, okay? They're saying the same thing. Faith alone saves. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't do enough good stuff, and then Jesus owes you All right, you can't, that's not how it works. That's a dreadful system of existence, by the way, because you'll never know if you did enough. And so the reality is faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. I love that. It completes itself in deeds. You see, then James gives us a second example. and It comes from an unexpected place. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Again, if you're new to this, the story's in Joshua 6, and it's an awesome story. But Rahab didn't grow up with the same foundation of faith that Abraham did. She didn't have the same knowledge of God that Abraham had. She was an outsider. She, did, she had idols. She had the best she could. She was a pagan prostitute in a city that God said you need to conquer that city and then that you will enter into the promised land and so she was an outsider but this there's a point in her journey where she looked at the God of the Israelites and she looked at her little gods and little authorities or whatever in her and she said I want to be with that one that God wins And so when the spies show up, she said, listen, I want on the team. And so she hid these spies and helped them escape. And she acted out her faith because she trusted God. Here's the point. Abraham was as in as in could be. He was the man that it started with. Rahab was as out as one could be. And James is saying, listen to this, that doesn't even matter. Some of you feel like you're as in as a Christian could be. And some of you were scared to even show up because you're like, I'm as out as out could be. And James is saying, that's not what matters. That's not what matters. As Paul says it, the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that matters. You see, that's real faith. That's why being a follower of Jesus means we become a servant. And this is where James ends his passage in verse 26, saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. In case you didn't get it by now, (laughs) as the body without the spirit is dead, So faith without deeds is dead. Everybody do me a favor and take a deep breath. Because this was an intense passage, right? There's an intensity to this. It kind of felt like we were in a cage match with James for a minute. Um, But it's just one of those things that the word is like a mirror. It shows us ourselves. All right, so here's the question. What do we do with this? Now that the word has showed us some things, what do we do about this? And I just want to make it really simple. As a follower of Jesus, start walking in the grand title that you have been given of servant start walking in it this is who you are this is who we we're designed to be this is actually where the adventure begins for some of us this is where coming alive actually happens for some of us when we walk into what God has called us to now if you're not a follower of Jesus here's the invitation for you man get to know him Man, start walking in his way. Start tre- You don't have to be a believer to start reading the word and see what the word does for you. Keep coming back. Keep asking questions. Keep taking a step. Whatever it is, we desperately want you to know Jesus because he th- we think he makes any and all of us a better human much more than that. He rescues us. He rescues us from all the stuff that we were running from. And so lean into him, pursue him, run after him. But if you are a follower of Jesus... It's time to serve. It's time to walk in. This is the invitation we have every day. We wake up with this thing on our mind that says, Jesus, I'm here to serve. What do you want? What are you doing around me? And how can I partner with what you're already at work and doing? At Compassion, we think of serving in two different ways. We think of serving within these walls and serving beyond these walls. All right. And then next week, we're actually going to get into serving beyond these walls. We're going to get into like, how do I know my fit? How do I explore my gifting? How do I discover my calling? How do I make, make sure that my unique gifting and calling is meeting the need in our city? And how do we discover those kind of things? We're going to get into a lot of that. But for today, what we're talking about is what does it look like to serve within these walls? Why is it so important? And so let me say this. The reason serving within these walls is so important because This is what makes the church special. When every one of us uses our unique gifting and calling to be a part of his church, that's what makes it special. In the church, people care for one another. We bear the hard stuff with each other. We are looking for ways to honor and serve and help each other. When a guest shows up, we treat this like our house, right? How many of you, when a guest shows up, you're like, I want this place looking right. At least all the closets are shut and everything's jammed in there, right? But when a guest shows up, you're like, man, I want I want them to have an awesome experience. I want them to not feel uncomfortable. I want them to experience what it means to be a a part of a community, a part of something special and significant. We want anybody and everybody to feel welcome. We want to be, listen to this, the tangible picture of how good Jesus is. When somebody just walks in, we want them to go, this is different. This is different. We want them to feel like they can belong, like they can be known and cared for. Because listen, that's what Jesus did for us. That's why it is our great joy, it is our delight to step into the role of a servant. You see, I see it a little bit like family chores. In my house, we all have chores. I have a three-year-old. He doesn't have as many chores because I don't want the house to set on fire or usually when he helps, it makes things worse, if you know what I mean. But as he grows up, he will get more responsibility. As we grow up, we take on more responsibility. This is our house this is our family. Imagine the last time you tried to pull off Thanksgiving, you know, together as a family. If that's a horrible experience, then pick a different one, okay? We don't want to go there right now. But imagine the last time your family got together and said, okay, who's on the green bean casserole? Because you always have to have green bean casserole at Thanksgiving dinner. But, you know, everybody had their piece. Some of you were on the cooking crew. Some of you were on the setting crew. Some of you were on the nap on the couch crew. That's not serving, that's different. But some of like, everybody has their piece and you pull this off. Well, heads up, in this family, It's like we pull off Thanksgiving every week. Okay, so it's a lot of effort and it's a lot of energy, but we love it because we love when the family gathers. We love the reunion. We love to get to sing together and we love to get to experience this together and encourage each other in this. And we love it when people take a step closer to Jesus. Man, when you see somebody who's far from Jesus and literally the look in their face is that of somebody who is broken and they walk out an hour later different. That's what we live for because we think Jesus changes everything. Listen, last week, last week I got to sit with three volunteers who've been serving a long time. Like they've been in the game for a long time. And when I walked away from that conversation, I was amazed because they were hungry. Do you know what I mean? Like usually sometimes people get tired of it and they're like, I've been doing the same thing, blah, 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 but they wanted more. They were like, how can I step into more and more and more of my calling as a servant? So let me just be really direct here, okay? Easter is coming. (laughs) Some of you know what that means. Easter is coming, or you were thinking of like deviled eggs and maybe that's what made you go, mm. (laughs) I don't know, I don't know what it was. I'm misreading the cues right now, but so anyways, Easter is coming. And heads up, there are a lot of people in our community that are hurting. You get this, right? We've all just walked through the same storm. We've been in different boats, but it's been the same storm. There are a lot of people in our community hurting. There are a lot of people in our church family that are hurting. A small step that makes a big difference is to jump on a team and serve. It's not just about opening doors, but yes, please, we need you to open doors right? It's not just about like parking a car, but please park cars and park them safely, right? (laughs) It's not just about comforting a child or leading on the worship team or any of those things, which all of those things are super important, but what you do is not really the most important thing that you're doing. When you serve, we're coming together as a family to help make people feel known and needed here. You are the picture of, of heaven for people this can become a place where they're introduced to Jesus without the barriers without the stuff as we serve that's what happens and so I don't know where you're at maybe you've taken a break I don't know if you know some of us online are still trying to figure out man I'm just waiting for a sign to know to come back to church heads up this is the sign Get back in the game. Because listen, if you're feeling differently, why don't you get back to the things that you were doing when you felt like your faith was moving? Some of those things are things like get in the game and serve. Help somebody wake up. Help somebody find their purpose. Help somebody feel comfortable in a place that's new to them. Listen, this is a chance to help our world that's desperately trying to find belonging to belong. And each and every one of you has a particular gift that actually helps us do that. Man, when we do it all together, it changes the game. So let's jump in, hopefully before Easter. But Easter's coming, so by Easter for sure. And let me just say this. If you haven't been through growth track, go through growth track. We'll give you one month. We'll get you pumped up, get you focused. If you have been through growth track and you're just like, I'm ready to get back in. Come on, this is the time. This is when you need you to jump in. Let me wrap up with one more story. Um, I was at a conference about a year ago, and I I saw this picture, and I didn't realize the story behind this picture. Many of you have probably seen this photo before, I think. It's a really well-known photo. But the story that I heard was this. In 93, Kevin Carter flew to Sudan to photograph tragic ramifications of a famine. And, and if you know the story, you, you kind of know the, the pieces of this. But it ravaged the place. And during his time in one of the villages, he, he just became overwhelmed. Because he was seeing so much brokenness. He was seeing so much hunger. He was seeing, so, he had to, so he began to walk out in the bush just to get away from it. And that's when he heard the whimpering of a child. And then eventually he found this little girl. And he made his way there and he... You know, honestly, was there to take pictures, so he took pictures and while he was taking pictures, she was on her way to a feeding center which was less than a kilometer away. And while he's taking photos, this buzzard stops in. And the buzzard's literally waiting on her to give up. And in those days, journalists were told things like, "Hey, you don't want to touch victims." Uh, you don't know kind of what's going on. They they might have diseases. They might have, and so he was at a he was at a really difficult place. What do I do? And so he obviously took some pictures and tried to scare off the buzzard. But eventually he just left. And when the photo hit America, it shocked us. Right when it landed in the Times, it was like I cannot believe this exists. You wanna know what the one question was that everybody was asking? What happened? What happened to this girl? What's the rest of the story? And honestly, I don't think anybody really knows. They've done some investigation. They think maybe she survived this moment, but probably died a little bit later. A year later, Carter won the Pulitzer Prize for this picture. But he was a tormented man. He was living in this place of nightmares and regrets for the things that he had seen. Think about that, right? If you see enough hurting, it disturbs you. Many of you have seen a lot of hurting situations. You try to help out in a lot of ways. And if you're not careful, the regrets of, I wish, what if I had done something different? Or could I have really changed something? Could I have done something, and so months after he won the Pulitzer Prize, Pulitzer Prize, he actually took his own life because he couldn't deal with it. Now, when I heard that story, it like broke me. Because <sighs> as a dad, how do you see a child... And not go, wrap her in your arms and just run. Right? How do you see something and not do something? How do you come face to face with hurt and pain and brokenness and not go, God, give me whatever I need to do what I need to do, but I need to do something because my faith, my calling, the reason I'm put on this world is to be a need in this broken and dark and hurting place. And I'm looking around at the vultures in our culture, waiting on people to just give up. Waiting on people to quit so they can have their fill. And we cannot be the church that says we have faith but does nothing about it. That's not, Jesus did not die on a cross. Defeat death and the grave and give us his spirit for us to sit back. He didn't face hell itself. So that you and I could have a faith without deeds. Man, now we running. We run into the hurt. We need to run to the brokenness. When we see the need, we step up. We grab the kids, we do whatever we can. When somebody walks in these doors, crawling, barely making it to this feed center, we do everything within our strength and our power to show up and show them Jesus brings life because he is the source. Listen, faith without works is dead. But here's what I know that is true. A faith that does work, not only is it living, but it brings life. It brings hope. That's who we are. May we live to the grand call of being a servant for Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace. God, help us. Help us to be the kind of people that when we see needs around us, when we see things that are going on, that we would recognize you have specifically gifted us and called us and equipped us through your spirit. Your word says you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. There's not a situation that we're going to run into. There's not a need that we're going to come face to face with that you have not specifically equipped us to deal with. All we need is a faith that works that acts. God, give us courage to live that way. Help us to live in your calling. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.